We're going to be talking together about small town Jesus, uh, hence the link there. And we're going to be looking at what it is to, or, or how we can, what we can learn from Jesus as a small town man, and for us living in Seaford. And today, particularly, I want to talk about walk, talk, and mix. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the New Testament in Mark chapter 5. Uh, we'll come back to that in a sec. Uh, I grew up in a small town. And small towns are fantastic because in small towns, you know everyone. And every time you go out, there's a face that's familiar to you. You can get on first name terms with the shop assistants quite easily. We had one supermarket in our town. All of my friends worked there after school. I knew where to find people when they were hanging out. Growing up in a small town was great because I knew everyone. But it was awful because I knew everyone. <laughs> and everywhere I went, there were people who knew me or certainly knew my parents. And often my antics would get back to my parents before I had a chance of getting back to my parents. And so small towns have their, their curses and their blessings as well. Uh, it's, it's probably that reality that led one writer in the New York Tribune to say that God made the countries, man made the cities, but the devil made small towns. <laughs> Uh, England as a country is a country made up of small towns. In 2011, the census that was done showed that there was 7,300 towns and cities in England. I want to have a guess. How many of those, 7,300, how many of those are over 25,000 in population? 7,300, how many of those are over 25,000 in population? 25. Okay. 2,000. Thanks for playing, Rodney. That's, that's useful because 25 makes my statistic look less impressive. But 2,000. No, the answer is 411. 411 towns in the UK, over 25,000. So it's a, it's a country. We're a country of small towns. Seaford is a small town or certainly has the small town feel to it. In 1903, there's a population of 3,000 people here. Now in 2011, there's a population of 23,571. I'm that one. Uh, New Haven has a population of 12,000. Peace Haven of 14,000. Seaford has one supermarket, one secondary school, and it has a very distinct identity to it. Many of these towns do in the, the Sea Haven area particularly because of our natural borders. We have the sea at one side, the downs at the back and the side, and then we have a river that separates Seaford from New Haven. And uh, it's lovely to see many New Haven people are willing to cross that bridge because you're teaching us hobbit folk that there is life outside of the Shire, which is good to have. Uh, it certainly has the character of a small town. Uh, I've, I've lived here for nearly five years now, which isn't very long by small town standards at all. Uh, but when you go walking in the town, people will talk to you and often will ask you, where are you going? Which is just lovely. Like, no one used to do that for me when I lived in Eastbourne or anywhere else. But they ask you, where are you going? Um, which is nice. And the bus, everyone, when you get on the bus, people know one another on the bus. There's a community bus. Everyone shares their business. Uh, and when there's a police siren in the town, you can go on the Seaford Facebook notice board and someone says, does anybody know what that, that siren was about? Which is hilarious. Can you imagine the, the city folk or Londoners doing that? Which siren? At what time? <laughs> there was three. Um, now, I've, I noticed that I've become more and more small town and Seafordian in mindset. I, I went to London on Monday. We went to Wembley to watch England play. And um, I, I realized how small town I am now because I'm walking along and I'm trying to engage city folk in conversations like, hello, where are you off to? Or there was one particular guy who looked pretty mean and he was sitting there on his phone smoking a cigarette. And I looked at him, made eye contact and smiled. And afterwards, I thought, you don't do that. What are you doing? You small town mouse, you silly boy. 
Attitudes towards small town vary, I suppose. For most people grow up in a small town, they want to leave because they're boring. There's nothing happens in a small town. And then they leave and go, it was quite nice back there. I'm going to go back to a small town. And so often people leave 18, 19 and come back 25 and go, I'm never leaving again. But attitudes towards small towns today are probably similar to what they were in Jesus' day. That the real action, the real places of importance are the cities. Uh, London and Paris, uh, New York. Or in Jesus' day, Rome or Jerusalem or Alexandria or even the trading port of Tarsus, which had a population, they reckon, of 250,000 people. Today, though, I want us to engage with how Jesus, as a small-town man, um, how Jesus interacted with people and what we can learn from that to take for us. And today we meet a man who was given instructions by Jesus explicitly to stay at home rather than come with him and go traveling, but to stay at home in his small town and to share the good news there. We're going to be in Mark chapter 5, and uh, we're going to read together from verse 1. This is what it says. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. That word immediately, Mark, who writes the gospel, loves that word. When he's talking about Jesus, everything is immediately and urgently and right away and suddenly. And that's what he does here. Immediately, because Jesus is here, he meets a man from the tombs. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Just picture the scene for a moment. This is hopelessness personified. This man was a man that everyone else had given up hope on. They had ostracized him to live among the tombs. He was a man tormented by darkness and excluded by his countrymen, but a man that the authorities, the helpers, the compassionate kinds of the day, it seems, have given up on him. They don't know what to do with this man anymore. Some of you know what that feels like when the doctor said, I don't know what to do. There's no hope. There's nothing I can offer you. Well, Jesus, we see, is the man who goes to the marginal places. He goes to the places that other people don't want to go to. And actually, Jesus' activity, even right down to his birth and place of birth, shows us that he was or, or teaches us much about God's character when it comes to the marginal and small and insignificant places. So kings are born in palaces, right? They come from cities. People of power and importance come from high places. And also with Jesus. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. A town, small village, they reckoned to be around 300, sometimes up to 1,000 in population. He lived in Nazareth, a place, of just 500, um, a place with just 500 people living in it. And Jesus spent 30 of his 33 years living in a small town around Nazareth. 30 of his 33 years. Can you imagine Living in a town of 500 people. Sure, he could have traveled and visited a few hundred others, perhaps for work with his dad. 
but a small rural country area where everyone knows him. They know him as Joseph's boy, or if they want to be rude about him, Mary's son, because his birth was questionable, wasn't it? Um, But that's what Jesus was. That's where he comes from. But the Son of God was born in a small town. Kids who grow up in small towns, as we said, they want to leave. They say, I'm ready for the world. Well, Jesus wasn't a city man. Um, God chose the small towns to bring his rescue plan into operation. In fact, Jesus bore the title, Jesus the Nazarene. People talk about him as Jesus of Nazareth. And we hear that and we just see it as a term of description. Oh, he's born from Nazareth. But then, as now, I suppose, and when we talk about country folk, it was a term of derision. When you said Jesus of Nazareth, you're meant to think backward. Or particularly if you lived in the south of the country, if you lived around Jerusalem, the power center of Israel, you'd view people from Nazareth or Galilee as kind of a bit like the southerners view northerners. Slightly strange. Um, that was a joke. It's okay. Um, but you'd view them as different from you. You'd be able to tell from the way that they spoke that they weren't from round here. They had a different accent. They were farmers, perhaps. So they weren't city folk. They weren't impressive, slicker-type people. Jesus of Nazareth. But it was also not just a term of derision and of insult. It was a term of intent. It was, it was intended to communicate something about the man. So Saul of Tarsus went on to become Paul, who planted many churches and wrote much of the New Testament. He came from Tarsus, a town of 250,000, a trading port and an important place. And yet when he's standing before Roman governors, having to give an account of what he's up to and who he's following, he says, Jesus appeared to me and called himself Jesus of Nazareth. Which when you read the description of the event in Luke's kind of description of what happened to Saul, he doesn't call himself Jesus of Nazareth, but Saul feels the need to add the extra detail that Luke missed out when he's standing before officials. Jesus of Nazareth. Like, Jesus of that backwards nowhere place that no one's ever heard of. In fact, the place that in Jewish minds was a place of compromise and a place of, I suppose, uh, where, where the, the pure religious elites would distance themselves from. Jesus was from there. He was Jesus of Nazareth. Saying that you got knocked off your horse and had a life-changing encounter with Jesus from Nazareth for a city slicker, it's a little bit like saying you got beat up by a girl and had a big impression and big impact on your life. But Jesus, as we see here in this story, he goes to the margins and the misfits, not to the high flyers and those with fancy lives. Jesus himself said, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. Jesus said, I've come for the lost, not the found. Legion, this man with the demons, was a man who'd been rejected by the living and forced to live among the dead. He was too ugly, too dirty, and too embarrassing to have in civilized society. He was a reminder, a constant reminder to his country folk. He was a constant reminder of life's brutality. He was an awkward part of their society, so they insisted, or perhaps because of his oppression from darkness, he insisted that he lived among the tombs. Jesus goes to the places that we feel uncomfortable about. Jesus is in Bangladesh and Syria. Jesus is in the places of the world that we watch on our news screens and think, goodness me, where is hope? Jesus goes to those places. 
if you've got your life all together, uh, if you feel you've no need for Jesus, and often your image of God, your image of Jesus is going to be skewed from the God of the Bible. It colors how you see him. But when you, like Legion, are living in this state, you realize your dire need for him. And today I want to talk in describing Jesus' ministry and how he reached this area and how Legion, this man, as we're going to read on, as he goes on to influence, I want to show you that uh, it has to do with Jesus' walk plus talk plus mix equals people uh, meeting Jesus. Someone once shared that with me. I find it helpful. That walk plus talk plus mix equals people meeting Jesus or equals influence in the area that you're from. In this section that we read, we're looking at walk. That Jesus' walk led him to those places that no one else wanted to go. Um, and influence then comes from reaching those places that other people don't want to go. Um, it doesn't come from where you live, but it comes from how you live. If you're a Christian this morning, then you are, and we are motivated and powered by a different source. And people should see that in the way that we live, our generosity, our priorities, our purity perhaps, I don't know. But your walk as a Christian ought to take you to places and to people that perhaps other people have written off. And you see that with Jesus. Let's read on together. And Jesus asked him, what's your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Which is a scary scene, isn't it? There's demons speaking to Jesus in this tomb graveyard setting. It's like something out of Halloween. And the man begged him earnestly, or the demons begged Jesus earnestly, not to send them out of the country. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came out to see what it was that had happened. The revolution is here. That's what this is about. This is a weird part of the Bible. And it's a story that often causes many people to scratch their heads. What's up with the pigs? Why did you do that to the pigs? In fact, one guy I knew who's in ministry for, um, for many years, he gave like a retirement speech. And he said the, the three most questions that he gets asked are, you know, how can a loving God allow suffering? And then something else profound. And then what's up with the pigs? You know, why did he do this to the pigs? It's a confusing, head-scratching moment. And some people say, ah, this is to, to show that Jesus is in non-Jewish territory because they're keeping pigs. And that's what he did. He kind of treated them like that and kind of ridded them of their uncleanness, perhaps. Other people say, oh, it's to show the value and worth of a human soul, that he would uh, kill 2,000 pigs in order to show how valuable one person is. Maybe. But actually, I think the most convincing uh, thing that I've heard as to what's up with the, as an answer to what's up with the pigs is this. This story and the stories that Mark's been telling in his gospel so far, are intended to show us that Jesus is a revolutionary coming to overthrow the powers in the world that are opposed to God's rule and God's kingdom. So we see him defeating the powers of darkness in Legion 
And then we see him also to take on, through symbol, the political powers of Jesus' day as well. So he's in an area, uh, the Decopolis, that was under Roman, under Roman occupation. Uh, the, the pigs, as they were called, the Gentiles, the enemies who'd come from across the sea to live in that area. This man describes himself as being legion, a word that to anyone in Jesus' day would have reminded them of Roman legions. Jesus casts, gets rid of legion by putting them into the pigs and sending them into the sea from whence they'd come. It's supposed to be a political cartoon that people would have understood to, to, understood to mean Jesus is here to overthrow the political rulers. He's here to cast out the legion, those powers that are oppressing the people of God. And actually, when you see um, it within the context of Mark's gospel, you'll realize just before a similar thing has been going on. In Mark chapter 5, so we've got... Um, if you, if you, I mean, if you look at your Bible and you see it at a glance, you can see what's going on. In the story before Jesus arrives, you have Jesus calming a storm. So you've seen his power and authority over the creation to calm the storm with a word. Then his power and authority over the demons to cast them out with a word. And then you see his power and authority over the Roman political powers, again, with a word and an act. And they've gone. This is supposed to tell us that Jesus is here to bring a revolution. Christianity is a message of revolution. It overturns mindsets and it overthrows the gods and things that people are living for. You know, there's, there's such a thing as small town mindsets, aren't there? And ways of thinking that aren't specifically, you know, only held by people in small towns, but are peculiar, particularly there as well. Jesus' message overthrows and overturns small-town mindsets and rebellious ways of thinking. Since we're talking about small-town Jesus, let's look at some of those small-town mindsets. The first one uh, is the mindset that says, we're from here. There's a pride of belonging if you're part of a small town. We're, I don't know, we're local. When you meet people who aren't from here, you, um, you know there's a separation because we're from here. There are insider names and insider ways of behaving. I'd never heard the word twitten until I moved to this peculiar town. And, and, and still now I'm refusing. I'm insisting on alleyways. But twittens instead of alleyways. Uh, when you move to a place, there is all the insider knowledge that comes with it over time. That if you hold it, you show you're of the inside. You're the in-group. New Haven and Peace Haven have their particular places that I'm not a part of and so I'm not familiar with. But I know here, you, if you're anyone, you go to Gino's, that's the best restaurant in town. Or I've learned through living here that the soft play isn't pronounced Dino's, which it should be by its spelling, it's, pronounced, no, it's not pronounced Dino's, sorry, it's pronounced Dino's. Insider information. Having a local mindset that we're from here is good. It reinforces identity uh, and it, it, it shows an interest and a love of the place that you live. But it's a bad mentality as well that needs overturning by Jesus' revolution. Because some people have lived in small towns for 20 years and are still not accepted as a local. And are still not part of the group. Uh, because in small towns, it can take a long time for people to accept you. For a long time in a small town, there's a them and us mentality. You're part of the, you're a city mouse and uh, we judge you slightly because of that. 
Or in small towns, people badmouth bigger towns or look down on people who live in those places. It's, it's a mentality. It's a small town mindset that Jesus' message of revolution comes to overthrow. The next mentality, the mindset is that nothing big can happen here. Excitement happens outside of the small towns. We go do our shopping and we go to the cinema and we have our amusements outside of small towns. And the mindset becomes, over time, on the one hand, we're proud of that because you think we're not tainted by Costa Coffees and Nero's. But over time, it can turn into a mentality of nothing big ever happens here, down to the expectation of God's people in the area. There's sometimes a lack of willingness to dream and expect God to use you in small towns or for God to do big things in small towns because the mindset of nothing big ever happens here can get under your skin. Jesus comes to bring revolution to that mentality that he sent his son to small towns because he loves people. He's not interested in um, influential cultural centers. Sifu will never, never get European capital of culture, but Jesus is here. And he wants his people to dream big about what he's able to do. You look at revival history, periods in the church where God has um, brought an awakening to an area. He often chooses the obscure, backwards, nowhere places that no one's ever heard of. And he puts them on the map by pouring out his spirit there. The third mentality is that the old is good and new is bad. People in small towns are more so than others suspicious of anything new. Often they say, we don't need that here, before they even know what it is. <laughs> if someone says, I'm starting up, we don't need that here. Oh, okay, fine. Whether it's new churches or maybe it's new houses on the Newlands estate, we don't need that here. No, thank you. We don't need that. Or new cafes, we don't need another cafe here. Maybe it's new attempts at ministry, we don't need that here. Multi-site church, I don't know, worship styles, we, we, we prefer traditional church here. What they mean is they prefer Victorian English traditional church because traditional church goes right back to here, but that's another issue. And we prefer things traditional and the same and we don't like change or you can't change the way we do our small groups. We'll call them house groups, whatever you do to them. doesn't matter. The old is good, new is to be suspicious of. Again, needs revolution because God is the God of new beginnings and new things. He says, see, I do a new thing. And when the Spirit of God moves, if we're not willing and ready to accept or to get in line or get on board with what God's doing, often we can miss out on a lot of the blessing that God has for us. Jesus changes his approach depending on where he's at and what time it is and who he's trying to reach. This is the only time he throws pigs into a sea. He will be pleased to know. It's not like a common thing. Like, oh, we do that pig thing. <laughs> you imagine the disciples, every time they went to a new place, we've done the pig thing before. They've got pigs. Put the, you know, and then kick them out. Let's do it. And Jesus like, no, no, we don't do that everywhere we go. There's a different thing. We listen to our father and see what he's up to, perhaps. I don't know. So there's the small town mindsets, but then there's also attitudes that are sometimes within not just small towns, but us as individuals, that Jesus' revolution comes to overturn. There's an attitude of miserliness or stinginess that Jesus comes to overthrow. As individuals, we can be, and we are by nature, more driven and concerned by self-protection, self-preservation, and by generosity. God is a God who's lavish in his kindness and generosity. His people, when the gospel gets under our skin, changes us to become more and more generous 
in our finances, in our time, and in our attitudes towards other people. Because miserliness, stinginess, isn't just a financial thing. It's a grace thing. We're more quick to judge and critique than we are to enthusiastically, warmly welcome or give the benefit of the doubt to. There's the attitude of prejudice. That again, is a similar mentality of we just look after our own and we are suspicious of different, different nationalities. Again, small towns, small areas aren't used to the level of diversity that our bigger cities are. They will be in 50 years as our suburbs and our countries look more like our inner cities as people move out. But by and large, there's, a, there's an undercurrent of prejudice because people aren't as used to having to adapt to new nationalities and new approaches, new languages in their small towns. But prejudice towards nationality or race or class or even just stage of life where we club together and stay with our own. We stay if I'm in my 30s, so I'll hang out with people in their 30s. Or when I was a teen, I just hung out with teens. Or when I'm in my 60s, we just we club together and we form cliques. Jesus comes to bring a revolution to that, to change our attitude towards the human race in general, to give us not miserliness but generosity and inclusivity. And then there's the attitude of retreatism, perhaps more commonly found in the church, where the church behaves like they're the only ones in the town. (laughs) We have a bomb shelter mentality. Let's just quickly hide away from the world and people who are different and don't believe. Do you know there are some people who don't believe the same things as us? Do you know that in this town? No, I've heard there are some non-Christians around. I've heard there's some people who don't call themselves believers in this town. Is that true? The pastor says so. I don't know. You see that sometimes in the church, perhaps not as explicitly as that, but in the way that people behave. There's a retreat, there's a club together. I was talking to some people this week, some very wise individuals in the church, uh, who, who told me, uh, told me of, a, of someone that they heard speak once who gave some money to members of their congregation or people they were training and told them to go into a betting shop and to place a bet on something and then come back and talk about your experience. To, for those that did it, To a man, they came back just baffled by the experience, found it very uncomfortable. It's an alien environment. I I wouldn't know what to do. I I suppose I'd probably use the internet. Um, But it's a very difficult, scary, daunting environment. I think they said someone did it. They walked in, they did it as quick as they could, and then they left. They said, well, that's how people feel about the church and about Christians. If I find that I'm accidentally talking to one, I'll cut my transaction short as quickly as I can. Or if I accidentally find myself walking into a church and there's people praying and religious things going on, I'll get out as quick as I can. We try to trap you with coffee because we want to get to know you. And brioche and grapes. and We should do grapes. And donuts and fruit and bananas. And Gillian, there's another thing for your shopping list there. <laughs> grapes. But Jesus' revolution, this is what he's doing with this man. He's bringing a revolution. You were once occupied by the powers of darkness. This area was occupied by the political powers, but now I'm coming to overturn that. He does that to small towns. He does that to small town mindsets. He does that to individuals. This is what the gospel does. And listen as well. So we talked about Jesus' walk or this man's walk. This This is more about his talk, how Jesus interacted and spoke. And in fact, listen to what he says to the man. He says, go tell these people at the end. He says, go tell these people what the Lord has done for you. It's about his talk. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Again, as Christians, we can be very quick to want to talk about our opinion on 
an ethical issue. What do you think about same-sex marriage? What do you think about abortion? What do you think about evolution or the end times? Jesus tells this man, go tell them what the Lord has done for you. I had a friend who uh, used to go out doing a lot of street evangelism and ask people questions with a clipboard. And I said to him once, do you see many people become believers as a result? And he said, no. I said, why do you do it? <laughs> and he said, because I want to make my mistakes on strangers. So when my friends ask me about the Lord, I'm ready. And I thought that was a very wise answer. And so for a while, I embraced the same strategy. Just go out, talk to people on the street, try and find out their attitudes towards God and religion. Why? Because I want to make my mistakes on people I don't really know and trying to explain Christianity and trying to explain Jesus so that when one of my family members says, so what do you, what do you believe? I'm like, I'm ready. I know things, what to say, what not to say. And I've made my mistakes on strangers. Walk and talk. Finally, let's look at the last part of this Bible passage. And they came to Jesus. This is the townsfolk with their pitchforks. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. When people see the work of God, it can often come, often create suspicion and fear. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Jesus didn't reach this region. Legion did. Jesus was refused entry. People were suspicious of Jesus. Who is this man that seems to control demons? You can't understand how they got there. Like, not only has he killed our pigs, he controls demons. He, it's better that he leaves. I can understand that. But ultimately, it didn't matter because Jesus had reached one. And that one went on to cause the town's fear to turn to marveling and wonder. History is the same story. Jesus, despite what they sing in the Women's Institute, his feet never did walk on English soils. Did those feet on English, what is it? Did those feet on ancient, whatever? You know the one. The answer is no. <laughs> but nice idea. Jesus hasn't been to Seaford, like in a, in a real practical sense. He's never walked in a human body on these streets. But you have, and I have, and so he has. And that's what happens with Legion here. They get rid of Jesus but Jesus has infected one of them with the message of the kingdom. And now he's ready to spread the message of God's love. And this message that he gives to Legion, this word that he speaks to him is a commissioning word. He says to him, go. And when Jesus says go, it carries all the force of a commissioning moment. Go to the ends of the earth. No, this is a go back home. You can imagine Legion. He's like, I'm ready. I'm healed. I'm changed. Where are we going? And Jesus is like, you're back home <laughs> where you live with your friends. No, no. Well, I'm, you, know, you can imagine what he would have been thinking. I'm ready to follow the, the man of power to the new and to the next. Lead on. Here we are. I'll leave these people behind. They don't care about me anyway. I'll go with you. We'll have adventures new. I'll tell my testimony in every synagogue you want me to. I've got a friend who's a musician. We could bring him along too. We'll have a great little worship moment, Jesus. And the crowds will gather around and I'll tell people my story. Wouldn't that be good? 
I used to be a no one from nowhere, but now I'm a somebody from somewhere because I've got Jesus. And Jesus says, go back home to that small town and no one, small town that no one's heard of. They're not going to write books about how the Decopolis influenced the world. They're not going to tell stories about how Legion transformed everything and became Roman governor, Roman Caesar. So it's not going to happen, mate. Just go back home and tell your friends there. You know, many of us can identify with that feeling, a feeling of wanting to leave, wanting to go. You know, we've just had a summer where a lot of us go to conferences, and the conferences are all about, hey, look at this guy who went to Istanbul, and he got his head chopped off for Jesus, and he's here to tell us about how it happened, and he's a radical. Do you want to be a radical? You should get your head chopped off by ISIS as well. Or here's someone else who has no money, and yet they live in a you know, massive house, and God provides everything for them because they left it all behind, and they went to Africa and China, and where are you going to go? And you sit there going, I don't know, but I should go somewhere. Um, I need to go to the loo right now, but maybe once we're done, um, let me have a think. Or many of us grow up thinking, I want to be a nation changer. I'm going to change the world. I'm I'm part of the millennial generation who've had that curse put on us by our baby booming parents. Many of you are them. Uh, Those baby booming parents who basically threw off the shackles of authority post-World War II and said, hey, you can do whatever you want. Ignore the church, ignore religion, ignore the government. And you, my precious snowflake, go change the world. And us millennials went, I'm going to change the world. But I don't really know how to wash the dishes. I don't really know how to change my socks because I've been so mollycoddled by my mom. What can I do? But I'm going to change the world. And so many of the millennial generation, people like me and younger perhaps, live with this sense of, but I've arrived. The world has arrived because I am on the world stage. And then at age 40, they go, ah, I feel guilty because I haven't changed the world and I don't have a record deal. And I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm going to become the president of America. I mean, anything's to happen. I mean, who can say? Um, it's, it seems like most people could get that job now. I probably shouldn't have said that publicly. Apologies. <laughs> Michael Horton wrote a book called Ordinary. And uh, he said in it, everybody wants to be a revolutionary but no one wants to wash the dishes. Everybody wants to change the world, but no one wants to change the nappies. Legion is sent back to the dishes and the nappies. He's sent back to his hometown where everyone knows him, where he grew up. But this time, he's got a go from Jesus. So this time, he goes as a diplomat. It's like an, an ambassador now of this message of what the Lord has done. It's like when Jesus said go, it's like he handed him a clipboard and a high-vis jacket. And went, if you, off you go, mate. And he's like, I've got a clipboard and a high-vis jacket. There's videos on YouTube of people putting on high-vis jackets and just telling random people to stop doing things or do things. And they just obey them because that's the power of a high-vis jacket and a clipboard. Uh, it's hilarious to watch some of them. I did want to find them, but um, they weren't that interesting to show on a Sunday. So we didn't do it. But when Jesus says go, he gives you all of the authority of an ambassador of heaven. And notice what this man does because Jesus says, go to your friends. And then the next sentence, it says, and so he went to the whole town. (laughs) He went to the Decapolis, and they all marveled at what the Lord has done. It's like he went to his friends and thought, I'm going to take initiative here and did this as well. Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world. And someone somewhere along the line went, I'm going to go to Seaford. (laughs) And we're living in the results of what they did. So you see Jesus' walk 
and how he went to the marginal places, his talk and how he overthrew, uh, brought a revolution. And this, this part here is about Jesus' mix, or actually in this case, it's about Legion's mix. And you need a good walk and a good talk and a good mix in order to have some influence or in order to reach people with the message of Jesus. Because you can live well as a Christian. You know, you can avoid the things you're supposed to avoid and do the things you're supposed to do. And you can have a good talk. You can be ready to tell anybody about Jesus and you can know the best ways of doing it. You can have a bracelet that has the four points or another one that says WWJD and you can have them all. You can have all the t-shirts, all the gear, but still no idea unless you've got the mix. Because for many of us, I suppose, Christians were guilty, again, of just hiding away. I've got my walk and I've got my talk down. I've been to so many conferences on how to tell people about Jesus. I'm just waiting for someone to ask me. Just waiting to meet some people. But this man had a walk, a talk, and a mix. And it was the marveling that followed the mixing. It often says of Jesus that he reclined at table which is a northern expression for saying, you know, he hung out at a party. He reclined at table. Whenever you read that, no, it's fine. It's just me. Uh, he reclined at the table. And that word reclined doesn't mean he handed out tracts. It means he hung out with people and he enjoyed people's company. And he was around sinners. He was around the people who needed him the most. There's a man uh, named Donnie Briggs who planted a church in his hometown, a small town, a small town of 9,000 people, not very big at all. And he says at the moment he has uh, about 1,000 people in regular attendance at his church every Sunday. That's pretty good going. I don't, know, I don't know where you're from. That is pretty impressive. And he tells a story of how he got there. And he said, well, to begin with, I just I went surfing because I like surfing and there's a big surfing community in my town. So we'd go surfing and we'd hang out in the water and occasionally we'd talk about Jesus. And then before long, enough surfers were interested in God that we, you know, they would come to our Sunday meetings and some of them would leave their surf festivals, come and hear the sermon and then go back to their surf festivals. And so they, they established a community based on surfers and they had a name that reflected they were surfers. And then he realized we're here to reach more than just surfers. And so... Because he's in America, and this is a thing, he, um, he grew a big beard, got a shotgun, and joined the hunting community. <laughs> went duck hunting. And so he went from the, hanging out in the, in the ocean, talking about Jesus while surfing, to sitting in duck hides with a shotgun, <laughs> telling people about Jesus. Like, believe me. That's, an, that's a convincing way to... Um, that's been done in history already, though. We shouldn't redo that. Um, the point is there needs to be a mix, an integrating into a town. And that can take a long time in small towns. Uh, for me, I run um, an after-school club at my boys' primary school on Fridays for dads. Uh, I've just become a coach of uh, his football group. I get my initialed jersey next week. Um, I don't know much about football, and I'm not very good, but no one's asked me about that yet, so that's fine. Um, we, we run a basketball group on Thursdays, um, and, and I'm trying to make sure that I drink coffee in the same coffee shop. There are lots of good ones in seafood, but pick one <laughs> and then get to know them and invest in them. Now, I, I'm in a position, I suppose, as a missionary in this town uh, to do as much as I can to try to integrate and to get a good mix. For many of you, it's harder when you work outside the area or when you do work, you've got a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't say and can and can't do. But still, there needs to be an intentionality on the part of us to mix well in this area, to love people and to get to know people. Perhaps for you, it looks like joining the local darts team 
or always shopping at the same time in the, sh in the same shop, or as I mentioned, just drinking coffee in the same coffee shop and, and showing interest in the people around you. I don't know what it looks like for you, but there needs to be an intentionality. We've already got, the, I think we've mentioned, we've already got um, members of opposing rotary clubs in Seaford and uh, they're still allowed to sit next to each other on Sunday, I'm told. Um, we've got people who took up line dancing or uh, we used to run a pub quiz in the area. I don't know what it's going to take and what it's going to do, but we're here because we want to tell people the message of God's love for this town. And that's going to involve not just a good walk and a good talk, but a good mix, some intentionality. And maybe it's just coming along to the hog and grog night. Already I'm interested, the fact that you put fire and beer and meat together and a lot of my male friends saying, yeah, I'll come. Uh, not like that because, you know, yeah, I'll come. That's not, that's not how they talk. Um, but it's just interesting to me. Maybe for you it's just coming along and befriending some of those people that come along to that. I don't know. I don't know. So which one of those walk, talk and mix would you say you lack the most is the area where you're weakest perhaps? I mean, you might be thinking, well, I'm not a Christian, so I don't really walk as a Christian. That's fine. But this, this can also be applied to just influence that you might want to increase in, in business or in, I don't know, among your friendship groups. If you've got a good walk and you've got a good talk, but you haven't got a good mix, you're not going to reach anybody with the message of Jesus. Likewise, if you've got a good talk, you know how to tell people about Jesus and you've got a good mix, but your lifestyle is a lifestyle of compromise and, to be honest, just look like everyone else, again, you're not going to result in people meeting Jesus and equally, you can have a walk and a mix and not really know how to talk about Jesus. Jesus was a small town man. He was Jesus of Nowhereville. In fact, when they killed Jesus, they strung him up on the cross and Pontius Pilate put a notice above his head that said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Like, what kind of an oxymoron is that? Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews? People said, oh, don't say that he was the king, but just that he claimed to be the king. But Jesus was a man who was the king of the rednecks and the working classes. He was the son of a woodworker. He was the king of the devalued and the marginalized and the often overlooked. He was the friend of sinners, they called him. He was a small town man who grew up in a place where everyone knew his name. Everyone knew his business. And yet even there, he managed to have an incredible influence and impact for the kingdom of God. Jesus of Nowhereville commissions us, his people, with that same message to go and reach and love small towns, the places that we're in, whether Seaford, New Haven or Peacehaven, with the message that he's a God who identifies with the lowly and the broken. He's the God who knows what it is to come from the places that people are embarrassed about. He goes to visit those places where people are uncomfortable to go. And that's our message you know, a few, few months ago, I was walking to church and I had a sermon prepared. And I walked past this guy who was just stumbling home, looked quite drunk, quite rough around the edges. As I walked past, I thought, is what I'm saying today, does it make sense to him? So I stopped and asked him. No, I didn't. I should have done. But it's been a real eye-opener to me, thinking Jesus was a, a man of the people. He was down to earth. He was a a salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. And so our message, if it's not understood by, uh, if it's not understood by kids, we've made it more complicated than Jesus did. It's a message of God's love and acceptance that the holy, creator, all-sustaining, all-powerful God who could destroy us in a moment, spoke everything with a word, created everything with a word, could destroy us in a moment, instead 
He sent his son to die on a cross and be identified as Jesus of Nowhereville to reach nobodies. And we are nobodies who have the privilege of knowing him as somebody. And that's our life's message. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you identify with the lowly and the marginalized. Thank you that you came to places like Seaford and you sent people to Seaford. Thank you, God, for how you send us week in, week out. And you tell us to go to our friends and our family. Actually, sometimes, Father, if we're honest, it's reaching our family and our friends are the hardest to talk to about you. Those who know us best are hardest to tell about you. I ask that you'd give us courage. Father, I ask for those who don't know you here today that they would see or hear in the heart of this message a desire to love and serve this town. And they would hear in the heart of this message about you, a God who identifies with them and has come to call them to himself. We look to you, Jesus, our Redeemer and Rescuer. Amen.